Good morning. In case you joined us late, my name is Kevin Heckman. I am not one of the pastors here. That's not a disclaimer. This message brought to you by the Logan Airport. Uh, I have two texts uh, that I wanted to focus this on this morning. Uh, so uh, you'll find them uh, in an insert in your program. So I want to invite you to stand as we read the Word of God aloud, and then we'll, we'll just jump right in. The first text is from 2 Corinthians, and these are the words of Paul. And Paul says this, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then the second passage is our main focus for this morning. It's one of the prayers of the Psalms. And the inspired words include this. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me. A clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do, not, you, do, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You may be seated. Gracious Father, full of loving kindness, we ask that you stoop to our weakness this morning. And as your life-giving word is laid open before us, we pray that you would seal it in our hearts and minds. You have already summoned us to worship. We ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to move in us and to change us, renew us for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So, a few years ago, there was a uh, popular television show. Some of you may remember it. Uh, called My Name is Earl. Okay. <laughs> My daughter's told me not to recommend that you watch it. Um, because it was a little bit naughty. But the, the theme was, 
the theme was pretty simple. Uh, so our character, main character Earl, uh, became convinced that he had done some bad things in his life. And that's why his life wasn't turning out the way he wanted it to. And so he reasoned that the way to balance out his karma so that his life would go better would be to undo all the bad things that he had done. So he made a list, a really, really long list of all the people he had ever wronged. And he set forth with comedic results, apparently, to try to undo all of the wrongs that he had done. Because then he could find peace and then his life would go in the right direction. And it was a comedy and it ran for four seasons and it ran for 96 episodes. And then it was canceled. And when it was canceled, Earl had still not balanced his karma. Earl had not found peace. Earl had not accomplished his goal. Matter of fact, for a while, there was a crowdsourced effort to write the last episode of the show because people are hanging. Like, whatever happened to Earl? Earl was experiencing this cycle of what Paul calls worldly grief. And the story is... Uh, is a, is a popular one, right? It's, it's ripped from the headlines, so to speak. You're not imagining things if you think that it seems like there's an increase in public sins and, and public apologies. One researcher says 1990s is really when it started to take off. Very, very popular. And so by now, you know kind of the, the rules of worldly grief, right? How you're supposed to do this. Number one, deny. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. You got it all wrong, just deny. Because you can't get any of this to stick to you, worldly grief, because it will take you down. So number one is deny. If that's not successful, then the second part of your strategy should be damage control, right? So limit the damage. Only confess to the smallest part of your uh, violation as possible. You know, mistakes may have been made, something like that, right? Damage control. And then, of course, if it doesn't work, then there's penance, Right? What can I do to prove to you that deep down I'm really a good person? So maybe if I donate to the right cause, or maybe if I take a little time away for you know, meditation, uh, a little time with my family, or maybe if I wear the right T-shirt, uh, then um, I can prove to you that this is really all just a big mistake, and I'm really, deep down, I'm a good person. So if you talk to Earl, or if you talk to any one of these public figures that you see uh, apologizing for their sin, you're familiar with the vocabulary, right? They talk about sorrow. And they talk about regret, and they may talk about remorse. So sorrow, I'm really sorry I did it. Or maybe the thought bubble says, I'm really sorry I got caught. <laughs> right? I'm really sorry that I did it. Um, remorse, if you're going to appear before a judge, this is a good word to learn. I'm, I feel really, really bad about what I did. I've, I've thought about it, and the more I think about it, the more I realize it was the wrong thing to do. And of course, then there's regret. So at the end of your career, someone says, do you have any regrets? And you're like, yeah, I really, really, really wish that I had not done that because it ruined my life. And so this is part of the vocabulary of of earthly grief. But where does it all lead? Is anybody saved? Is anybody truly redeemed? Does anybody really find peace? Well, Earl didn't. And I think most of the people we see in our headlines also don't. It doesn't go anywhere. Matter of fact, Paul, what Paul says is what it leads to, this world is it leads to another kind of death. Because the gods of this age are angry. And when, when they light the torches for you, about the best you can hope for is that somebody else will come along that will do something even more outrageous than whatever it is you got caught, and so people will chase after them. But that's hardly a victory. This is what happens when you live in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. 
So besides Earl, there are about 330 million people living in the U.S. right now, about 7.6 billion in the world. Um, but despite the, uh, despite the contrary to the, to the spirit of the age, if you remember Psalm 1, the, the gateway into the Psalms, Psalm 1 says there are only two ways to live. There aren't 330 million ways or 7.6 billion ways. There are two ways to live. And there are two ways to experience grief and sorrow over when we sin. <clears throat> One way is blessed, and it leads to life, and it leads to grace. One way is oriented toward God. It, it, it acknowledges God as, as, as Lord and Savior. It seeks to, to please God. It seeks to walk with God. All of the other ways are variations on the same theme, trying to run away from God and hide and live life on our own terms. So we've talked about the, blessed, uh, the unblessed way, the way of worldly grief. What about this way, this, this path that Paul talks about, this alternative? Godly grief, godly grief that apparently leads to salvation and apparently also leads to salvation without regret. That distinguishes worldly grief from godly grief. So you need to add this to your vocabulary of repentance or, or of, of sin, and that is the word repentance. Repentance, sorrow, regret, remorse, repentance is the key word. So if you're looking for the root for the word repentance in Greek, it's metanoia. So it's two words, right? It's, it's, it's to change after a change of mind. So I was walking this way one day, and I learned something. I realized something. I realized I was doing the wrong thing, and it's, such a, it's a life-changing impact. And so now, as a result of that, I can walk this way. I can walk in a different way. It's a, it's a true repentance. A metanoia is a complete changing of the person. It's not just a, a slight reduction in your sin quota, right? It's like, I should probably cut back on that a little bit. I'm overdoing it. It's, it's a, it's a, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, it's a painful process. It's a type of death because it says it's the dying of the old nature. But more importantly, it's the rising to life of the new. This new life. This new life that Paul talks about that he experienced, it certainly knows sorrow and remorse and regret, but it doesn't stay there. It's a gateway into a world that's full of joy, as the psalm says, joy um, and power to live in a new life. It's a gateway. God is angry. God is not angry with his people, unlike the gods of this age. The covenant God loves his people, and he calls us, and he's mighty to save, and he's mighty to save even the most desperate of sinners. And Psalm 51 is really one of the textbook examples of what that looks like in the life of a real person with a real set of circumstances. So I want to invite you to keep it on your knee this morning as we walk through it. And Psalm 51 is a prayer, of course. This is a series on the prayers of the psalm. So it's been given to us to teach us how we should pray. So as we read through it this morning, I would invite you not to just bring your mind, but to bring your whole life to this prayer. Bring your circumstances. Bring your life. Read it in between the lines of this prayer. Maybe this morning you are already a believer, and, but you're still struggling with a sense of regret for some of the things that you have done in your life, and you, you yearn to experience the freedom that's talked about here in these texts, or 
Or maybe you aren't yet a believer and you're still living the my name is Earl life and you feel like it's the fourth season and it's the 96th episode and you're about to get canceled. So I'd invite you to bring all of this to this prayer. And my prayer is that you would find the same mercy that David found. So the background, of course, um, is probably familiar to you. Um, if you need more background, you can flip back to Second Samuel, but helpfully, the inspired words of the Psalms include the background for us right at the header, just to make really, really sure you have the context. So you remember in Second Samuel, the narrative starts out this way. It was the spring of the year when kings go off to war. But David wasn't off to war with his army. He was back in Jerusalem, taking it easy on the roof of his palace. And this is really the first uh, troubling sign that we have in the narrative that something wasn't right in David's heart. He wasn't doing what God had called him to do. He had outsourced his duties, and here was the man who had everything on the roof of his palace, and in his self-indulgence, his eyes found Bathsheba. So one thing led to another, and by the time the whole sordid affair was over, Bathsheba was pregnant by David. Uriah, her husband, lied dead, and David was caught red-handed. Now, in David's case, uh, it was the prophet Nathan that came, you remember, and he told that whole parable to, to, to David, and uh, he was caught red-handed in front of his entire court. And now at this moment, when David is confronted with the, the reality of his sin and that everybody knows about it, he's got a choice to make, doesn't he? He's got a choice about which one of these two paths he's going to walk down. And it would have been really, really easy for him to follow the model of the first failed king of Israel, Saul. Right? You remember Saul, the not-my-fault Saul? <clears throat> right? Whenever Saul was confronted with sin, he deployed the playbook of this world. What do I need to do to make this go away? My mother abused me as a child. I don't know. It wasn't my fault. I was under a lot of pressure, right? It was all excuses. Saul always equivocated, made excuses, and did whatever he could do to try to avoid the circumstances and the consequences. And how did Saul's story end? Godly grief leads to death. Paul's story ended that way. But David, David was able to make a different choice. Because David was able to listen to the Holy Spirit in this moment. And he was able to choose the path of life. And when the Holy Spirit finally softened his heart, he was able to see the full magnitude of his sin. And what did he do? He, he certainly experienced a lot of emotions, but he repented. He repented. And that's what this text is. So let's take a look at it. Let's start at the very beginning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Where does David turn? He turns to God. He turns to God where his only hope of help was. And, and look, look how naked and how unadorned his statement is. There's no flowery words here. There's no equivocation. There's no hedging. He just, he, he just, he's, it's straight Talk to God, have mercy on me, O God. And what does he base his desire, his claim for mercy on? On God's, according to your steadfast love. Now, the phrase that we have translated into English as steadfast love, many of you know, is a Hebrew word, 
chesed, or hasid, or if you're really Jewish, you say chesed. And that word um, translated is, is translated in English in various ways. So here we have steadfast love. Sometimes it's mercy. Sometimes it's loyal love. And it's a really, really important lo- a word because it really undergirds the entire framework for the Psalms, the entire framework for all of Scripture. And it's this idea that God, the love of God is a forever and always love that he keeps his covenant promises, that when he makes a promise to a people that he will take care of them, that he never violates it. It's, it's unchanging. It doesn't, it doesn't vary based on our behavior. It's based on the character of God. It's based on his faithfulness and not our own. And how does David know this about God? Well, David is, after all, the leader of a people who are famous around the world for being a stiff-necked people. Right? A rebellious people. David has seen over and over and over again how this loyal and loving God has continued to pursue his people even though they proved over and over again that they are completely unworthy. That God keeps his covenant promises. And this faith, this confidence undergirds all of the Psalms. You can't really understand the Psalms without that mindset. And David isn't taking advantage of this. Right? Now he's like, aha, I've got a loophole. He's clinging to it. God, do according to me what your nature and your covenant promises dictate, not according to what I have done. And God's mercy, David knows this, it's not a severe mercy. There's no edge or reluctance to it. It's overflowing and everlasting, and it comes from the very heart of God. And David goes on, verse 2, what does he ask God to do? Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Elsewhere in the Psalms, David had said, remember, if you should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? David knows that he cannot stand in the life-giving presence of God with the stain of sin on him. He has blood on his hands. And he's not asking God to overlook them. You notice that. He's not saying, just pretend like it didn't happen. Right? Let's just put this behind us. He's asking God to purge them from him, to remove them, to remove the stain of sin from David's very soul. Because David knows that only God can truly cleanse him and make him whole. None of those tactics of worldly sorrow do this. They're basically just a fig leaf, right? They're like, yeah, I, did. I can't change what happened. It's in my nature, but I can pretend it didn't happen. I can dress myself up so that I look like a clean person when down deep I'm not. But David knows. Remember Psalm 1, blessed are the righteous. Blessed is the righteous man who walks in the path of God. David knows he realizes fully at this point that I have not walked on that path. I am not a righteous man. He understands that his identity, his, his ability to cling to that is based on his being forgiven by God, not by keeping the law perfectly. And when God cleans you, you are truly clean. How does the song say? Whiter than snow. I know that's a metaphor that doesn't really resonate here, but trust me, it's, it's very, very white. And David, David is focused entirely on being forgiven by God. That is the only solution to his problem. And he goes on, what does he say in verse 3? For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David is describing what it feels like 
to have the hand of conviction of a holy God on your heart. How does it feel? It doesn't feel good. You can't forget it. You can't pretend it didn't happen. When he goes to bed at night, it's on his mind. When he gets up in the morning, it's on his mind. The hand of God is heavy on David. And David wants it to go away. Now, David could have asked God to make it go away, couldn't he? He could have said, help me, uh, give me a therapist that will help me just put this in my past. But that's actually not the solution, is it? Remember, uh, if you ask God to take his hand of conviction off of you, that's a prayer he may answer. Remember Romans, Paul talks about this. There are times and places in people's lives, if they harden their hearts against the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there are times and places when God will say, have it your way. Fine, I will stop convicting you of sin. But where does that end up? That's not a prayer you want answered. David knows that the Holy Spirit is not trying to crush him. David knows that the Holy Spirit is trying to call him back to the pathways of life. And it's not a complaint. It's an acknowledgement. And David knows that once he's truly cleansed, all this will be behind him. So let's keep going again in verse 4. For against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, is this literally true? Can you think of a few people that might have a complaint against David? Bathsheba, this is her me too moment, by the way. Bathsheba did nothing wrong. This was David's fault. Uriah? Who's dead, by the way, Uriah's family, David's entire army that was compromised by this, his family, his advisors. I mean, the list of people that David has sinned against is long. And if you read the narrative, you know that the consequences of David's sin ripple throughout the rest of his life. But that's not what David is saying. I don't think David is saying those people don't matter. What David is saying is, what I acknowledge, Lord, is that all of the things that I've done against the people in my life ultimately ladder up to the throne, the highest, the highest court in the land, the throne of God. That when I sin against somebody else, it's ultimately a sin against God. Another way to put this is, if all of the people in David's life were to come to him and say, you know, I get it, you've got a hard job, and I really like you, so let's just, let's just let this bygones be bygones. I forgive you. If every single one of these people had forgiven David, he still has to go before God and acknowledge, I have broken your laws. It all ultimately rolls up to God. Or if none of these people had caught him, he still is acknowledging that ultimately I have sinned against the God in highest heaven. And he goes on, so that you may be justified in your words, verse 4, and blameless in your judgment. David saying, basically, you would be justified to slay me. I have no defense. I'm not trying to wriggle out of this or negotiate a settlement. I am 110% guilty. And furthermore, I deserve death for what I've done. When is the last time in one of your courtroom dramas or in your daily life when you've heard a confession this naked, this honest? It's really unheard of, isn't it? It's not in the playbook of worldly grief. You can't because it will destroy you. But here's David talking to the judge saying, and by the way, here's the sentence I deserve, just in case you weren't clear. I do deserve death. So just helping you out there. 
It's a type of radical honesty. You don't hear David saying, but you know what? I'm a really good person. I got this karma. No, it's none of that. David is being completely honest. This is something that you can only do with repentance before God. And why? We'll get to that. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, why has David got to bring his mama into this? (laughs) Right? Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying it's her fault. That's something Saul would have done. I wasn't raised right. I mean, if you knew the environment I was raised in, no, no, no. That's not what David is saying. What's amazing to me about this and what's so important is that David is here acknowledging and accepting responsibility for his own original sin and his total depravity. And David's recognizing that this particular episode in his life was not an exception to an otherwise clean record. You know, I've been doing really well so far. This is just one little mistake. Uh, it's some sort of aberration caused by a temporary bout of sin sickness, and I'm better now. It's going to be okay. It's not going to happen again. David is recognizing that he did the bad deed because he's a bad seed. He recognized that he bore bad fruit because he's a bad tree, that the sin goes even deeper than what was on the surface. Now, this isn't a very popular notion, is it? It's not even a very popular notion in contemporary Christian circles. David is saying, deep down, I am not a good person. That is not my identity. And sometimes I think we're tempted when we try to define sin. If we use the playbook of the world, we want to define it very, very small. Right? Sin is only the explicit things that I do that are in a violation of the law of God. Or maybe it's the explicit things I don't do that are called for by the law of God. But David is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. It goes deeper than that. That's the sin in us that infects every dimension of our being that we also need to repent of. And we, we fool ourselves, I think, sometimes into thinking that we're essentially good people who occasionally do bad things. David says, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. Our disordered desires, David is acknowledging my disordered desires, my inner inclinations of the heart also displease God, and they need to be put to death before they put us to death. As the Apostle James tells us, each person... James says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. This is what David has experienced. Now, make no mistake, it would have been better for everybody, especially Uriah, if David, on that night, on the rooftop, had said, stop, this is not who I am. I'm going to resist this temptation. It would have been much better for everyone, but he still, he still would have had to approach God in worship and say, I confess that the, the motivations of my heart were sinful. And so Christian, just I think sometimes we make the mistake of, of trying to live a life that tiptoes along the ledge, right along that, that borderline of sin, thinking that as long as is no matter what our inner, inner orientation is, as long as we don't put that toe over the line, that we're okay with God. And what David is saying is, God sees the heart. Every dimension of us is disordered, is displeasing to God. That's why we sin. 
If we want to experience this new life and this joy, we need to repent of sin even before it flowers into action. Look at verse 6. Well, look, David says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth, where? In the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the, sacred, in the secret heart. The second commandment, don't lust, that's, that's a sin of the heart. Even if he, David hadn't acted, it would have been a sin to repent of. Jesus said it's not, it's the things that come out of the heart that defile a man. True repentance cannot be faked. It's not surface only. We have to approach this holy God with honesty to let the Holy Spirit do its work like a surgeon. And what metaphor does, does David use in verse 7 to describe what he's seeking from God? He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And the language here, this is, this is a language of the cleansing rites of Israel. So, for example, if you had leprosy, you were unclean, you couldn't live with your family, you couldn't live in polite society. But if you were declared cured, you would go to the temple, you'd go to the priest, and they would, they would cleanse you with hyssop. It was part of the cleansing ceremony. And when you were done, you were walked out, you were not only, you were declared clean. You could re-enter life with your family. You could re-enter society. There was no asterisk by your name. Your identity was a full-fledged <clears throat> child of Israel. This is what David is looking for. Our first instinct when we see sin in our lives is to try to cover it up, sweep it under the rug, right? Turn the lights down low so it's not as visible. Run away and hide like Adam and Eve did. But our covering, the covering that God gives us is Christ. It's not something we can do alone. David is longing to be made whole, not just to be covered up. And I think even by now you can start to hear some of the differences between the type of conviction that the Holy Spirit brings and the condemnation that comes from Satan. I'd say Satan is the accuser. His voice says, you are unworthy. You should despair. There is no hope. Don't bother going to God because you are too dirty for him to clean up. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit has a type of sweetness to it. You know he'll never cast you aside. You know he'll never leave you. You know he'll never forsake you. You know that God looks at you as a covenant child, as a beloved child, and he wants to restore you, not to crush you. Look how David puts it in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice This doesn't happen with worldly grief. When your bones are broken by worldly grief, they stay broken. When they're broken by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they're knit together into something so much better. This is what David has to look forward to, even though he knows he's going to have a lifetime of cleanup to do because of the sin that he did. Because he's going to do it with God on his side, he can face it. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, this language is interesting, I think, because the word create that we have in English here is the same Hebrew root word that we see in the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Hebrew word is bara. It's a word that only God can be attributed to God. So you and I, we can bang together a shed or an Ikea 
Well, some of us can. <laughs> right? But we cannot bara something. We cannot create a cosmos out of nothing. Only God can do that. This is the language that David uses here. Create in me, bara in me, a new heart. It's a type of creating that only God can do. He knows that it's not enough just to ask for God to forgive him. He needs a new heart, and only God can do this. He needs a wholesale recreation in his life in order to continue to live as a child of God. And his cry, and I think our cry as we approach this psalm, is don't just forgive me. Fix me. Change me. Have your own way, Lord, in me. Don't leave me in my sin or I'll be right back. And this is from a man who is already regenerate, right? This is not David praying the sinner's prayer. It's not like he's just coming to God for the first time. He has walked with God his whole life. And David is demonstrating it. This is a prayer for believers. It's not just in, a, in case of a really, really bad sin, break the glass and drag out this psalm. This is a daily activity, and it's not, a, it's not an infinite loop, right? It's not a, a futile circle. It's a spiral. It's a spiral that continues to help us ascend to God until that day when our sanctification is finally complete, and we can see him face to face, and this body of sin has been completely replaced with a spiritual body. David is asking God to do nothing less than to continue his work of creation in him. This is what he needs. It goes so deep. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, this one can be controversial. David has already said in verse 4, of course, that God has the right to cast him aside. I mean, he's been very helpful about that. He said, God, you know, you have judge of the universe. You have the right to condemn me. But, of course, he's asking him, please, in your loving kindness, please don't give me what I deserve. And I think David is not so concerned here with losing his salvation, right? Sometimes people read that into this. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Remember, David is no ordinary person. David is the anointed king of Israel. He holds an office. And remember what happened when David was anointed by Samuel. He received special gifts from the Holy Spirit to be able to do his job. He got king of Israel gifts that most of us don't have. I'm kind of working on mine yet, but I'm... Right, so he, he's acknowledging he's acknowledging that he that he can he can't do his job without the gifts of the Holy Spirit working in him and through him. So he's he's acknowledging that he says I can't be king without you. So don't just forgive me, don't just give me a new heart. But if you want me to continue to be your king and serve your people, I need your help. I think it's a common mistake that some of us make. If we see the active activity of the Holy Spirit in us, he's given us gifts to confuse the action of the gifts in us with God's approval. You see this with prominent pastors and people like that. Well, God must really like me because I'm really good at this. Now, David may have been thinking that night. I'm really, you know, I am all that. I mean, look at this. Look at me. So David is coming to himself now and he's realizing, no, 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 no. God gave me these gifts so that I could serve his people. I got it all wrong. He's asking God to allow him to continue to do that. And what will David do if God answers his plea? Verse 13 and 14, let's start with 14 first. I will sing aloud of your righteousness. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your 
righteousness. Let's start with righteousness. This is interesting. David is not asking God to give him a mulligan. He's not asking God to violate his own holiness in order to let David live. He's not only appealing to God's mercy, his loving kindness, but he's also here appealing to God's justice. How? How does that work? Now remember, David has been to the temple to offer sacrifices, and he understands the basic principle, life for life. Right? The blood has to be shed to atone for sin. A price has to be paid in order to solve the problem of sin. And he knows, David knows, however imperfectly, that when God forgives, in order for him to forgive, justice still has to be done somehow. Payment has to be made. Of course, we, living on the other side of the resurrection, now see clearly what David David was seeing through the clouds, through this earlier phase of salvation history. We understand those shadows of sacrifice in the temple pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But even then, David knew. David knew that somehow God himself would have to pay the penalty for his sin. And that this would be justice. That God himself would be righteous in making a full payment for David's sin. And that when that happened, that mercy of God and the justice of God would be united and that mystery would be revealed. And David sees Christ paying for his sins, even if from a distance. And David trusts God. He trusts God to keep his promise in a way that he couldn't even fully understand. How much more can we on the other side of the coming of Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, how much more can we trust him to do the same? That God is a God of justice is good news. It's also terrible news. It's good news. Have you been sinned against? Have you been wronged? The God of justice has seen it, and he will make sure that justice is done. He will fight on your behalf. It's also terrible news. Have you sinned against anyone? The God of justice has seen it, and he will hold you accountable for what you did, unless unless both are paid for on the blood of the cross. And that's the only way we can be at peace with God. And that's the only way that a people, sinful people like us who keep doing bad things to each other can be at peace with each other. <clears throat> because it's buried in the blood of the cross. That's the only way. Let's go back to verse 13 and 14. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now is David bargaining with God here? You know, tell you what. You do this for me. And I'll become a missionary. I'll become a pastor. I will preach. No, no, no. That's not what's going on here. Remember a few weeks ago, David preached on the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 150, which is all about praise. Everything ends in praise. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our purpose is to give our creator praise. Sin gets in the way of that. David is acknowledging my sin has gotten in the way of me serving not only my purpose as a king, but my purpose as a creation of the holy God. I should, my whole life should be pouring forth praise to this God. I can't do it because my lips 
are unclean. So he's saying, cure my mouth, and I will be able to go back to praising you the way I always should have. This is what David understands what his chief purpose is. Verses 16 and following, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And David is not abolishing the sacrificial system here, right? He's not saying, ah, we don't need that, it's worthless. He just knows that there's no inherent power in those things. He understands that they're pointing to something, an ultimate reality that was coming, that would soon be fully revealed, that he was putting his faith and trust in. But he also knows is that you can't worship as a hypocrite. All right, you may come to church, that's a good thing. You may put something in the collection plate, great, God is pleased. All right, but don't fool yourself. We can't fool ourselves. We can't fake sincerity with God. Without the right heart attitude, God rejects our attempts as like filthy rags. Now, David's not saying that sinners should not be in worship, right? Because I'd be the first one to have to leave. He's not saying that. He's saying we have to approach God with honesty. We can't fake it with God. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. You know, this is one of the first signs that David's heart is finally being turned around. What he's saying basically is, don't punish the people for my sins. He's starting to realize, now it's not just all about me and my personal pain, and you don't understand what I'm going through. He's realizing that the, the echoes of his sin are in danger of, of affecting the people that he has been called to serve. So he asked God, please, don't punish the people for what I have done. I take responsibility for it. And then verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Then he's saying, then I can really worship. I can worship in spirit and truth. Then the sacrifices that I make in the temple will truly be pleasing to God, be a pleasing aroma to him. Then I will be truly restored. I'll have a right standing with God, not because I'm self-righteous, but because he has purchased my righteousness. And then, then I'll be able to walk out of this palace and face the mess that I've created but with God on my side, being right with God, how can I fail? And this closes the psalm. This is the end of our psalm. Two ways to live. The way of God, the way of man. <clears throat> the way of life, the way of death. The way of repentance, the way of regret. As I said, look around you. You see people walking on both paths, don't you? Look in the pages of Scripture. You see people walking on both paths. Saul, David, Judas, Peter, Paul, just to name a few. All knew God. They knew the grace and the mercy of God. They worshiped God. They tried to walk with God. All sinned, and they took diverging paths. Saul sinned, could not repent, ended up living Basically, dying in an assisted suicide, trying to live life under his own power. David, in contrast, sinned, repented, turned to God for healing, and found grace and joy and a renewed life. Judas, 
betrayed the Savior, immediately regretted it, could not find it in his heart to repent, and died a miserable death. Peter also betrayed the Savior, immediately regretted it, but went to seek out the risen Christ. And he found forgiveness, and he found restoration, and he found a permanent place in the kingdom of God. Paul persecuted the church. By his own accounts, he had blood on his hands. And yet, when he, when he encountered the risen Christ, he also repented and found life. And according to Paul's own words, it was a life without regrets. How can you not regret being responsible for other people's lives? And why do we have this psalm? Well, look at the headline again. This is not a ripped-from-David's-prayer-journal psalm. This is not a, you know, after David died, when the next administration came in, Freedom of Information Act, we extracted this from his personal files, and look what a terrible person he really was. No, this is not how, this is not, that's not the circumstance under which we got this psalm. David wrote this, and he set it to music, and he gave it to the director of worship, and he said, publish this. Write it into the songbook of the people of God and teach it to people. And by the way, just to make sure people understand what I'm talking about, make sure you make explicit at the top of the psalm exactly what I was repenting of so they know exactly what the circumstances were. He didn't say, wait till after I'm dead. He didn't say, wait till after the 30 or the 50 year period has passed. He said, do it now. With my lips, he said, I will praise God. He was doing it right away. And David was able to experience this this free and this full forgiveness. And he was able to work through the consequences of his sin in fellowship with God. You can read about it in 2 Samuel. His life was not as easy as it would have been if he hadn't committed this sin, but he walked with God. And he didn't spin it, and he didn't minimize his sin, and he wasn't proud of it. He knew the price that would have to be paid to atone for his sin. He did not use it as a license to sin all the more, but he had been set free from his regrets. David, Peter, Paul, all of them living new lives, experiencing freedom, not only of forgiveness, but of new life. So why, how do we do this? I mean, we do this every week, right? We did it again this week. We have the confession of sin every week in our order of worship. You Calvinists, you're always going on about sin. But I've said it before because I think it's true. It's because we can. It's because we can. Because everybody who's in this world knows that there's something deeply, fundamentally wrong with the world and with us, right? And there's no remedy in this world for what ails the world. So only in Christ can we be actually, finally honest about what our problem actually is. And only by looking to the sacrifice of Christ... Can, on our behalf, can we find an entirely new way to live, to take away our sin, to take away our shame, and the power to live a new life? This is what defines godly repentance and godly sorrow from worldly sorrow. And we do this every day because his justification is the fuel for our rejoicing. We invite God to search our hearts not because we want to show off the trophies of our good works. We invite God to search our hearts because we know there's more trash in there that needs to be taken out. And only God can be trusted to do it. That that way lies rejoicing. That way lies joy. That way lies new life. 
So this morning, here we are. Maybe this morning you're struggling under your burden of sin. Every time you read your Bible, you feel worse about yourself and not better. Maybe you're living with regret. Maybe you're tired of just trying to manage the symptoms of sin in your life and trying to do damage control. David says, come to Christ. It's that simple. Turn to God. Turn to God. Repent and confess everything. Everything. Go and read your Bible and find even more things to repent about than you thought of the first time and go back and do it again. Coming to the end of ourselves is the first step into this new life. The recognition of sin is the gateway, the door into repentance and salvation. Don't negotiate capitulate. Maybe you've already tasted this forgiveness in your life, but the the evil one continues to accuse you and you feel regret. I know God for, I know I should feel the joy of God's forgiveness, but man, I'm, I just can't move beyond my regret for the things that I've done. My friends, the forgiveness of God is so great that he forgives not only our sins now and gives us new life into the future, but he redeems our past as well. Regret is a passageway. It's not a place for God's people to live. Living in regret, that's godly sorrow, not godly sorrow. David and Peter and Paul, they understood that everything that they had gone through, even their own sin, was necessary for their own good and for God's glory. They weren't weighed down or nagged by their sinful past. They were set free. They had regret, but it was momentary. It drove them to Christ. The regret of Saul and Judas drove them deeper into themselves and ultimately to despair. Whatever, whatever lurks in your life, it has no power over you any longer if you are forgiven by God. Our identities are hidden in the covenant-keeping, always faithful Christ. In him we are a new creation, bara. As Barry Cooper once said, the past has no jurisdiction in the kingdom of God. Salvation, salvation without regret. Again, back to Paul. I mean, of all people, Paul should have lived with a a life of regret. Okay, I'm forgiven, but I can never take a position of leadership in the kingdom of God. What I've done is just too bad. This is what he says in Philippians 3. Not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call. Repentance is the gateway and the threshold to following that upward call. A life that is stripped of its, where sin is stripped of its deadly power, where the grave has been robbed, a life of joy and a life of peace, even peace with our past. Do not wait, as the song says, until you feel fit to go to him. Our unfitness is our fitness. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Do you believe that? Because he delights in you. Before he created the universe, before he barad the universe, the king of the universe knew everything about what David was going to do in his life. 
He knew everything about you and I were going to do in our lives. And he knew what price he would have to pay to make it right. And you know what? He did it anyway. Because he delights in us. David believed this. And it fueled his prayer. How did it all end for David? Well, you can go back and you can read Second Samuel. So you can read the facts on the ground. You can see that David's problems were not over. Uh, but he faced them once again. He faced them in, in a right place with God. He was able to worship rightly. And he worked through all those issues, and God sustained him through all those issues through the rest of his life. And we hold up David today as a man of God, even though he did some really terrible things. God was with David. God kept his promises the same way he would keep the promises for you and for me. I believe that Psalm 32 is in many ways David's epilogue, his part two, his rest of the story. So I'm going to close with these words this morning. <clears throat> Hear the words of David from Psalm 32, a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love, chesed, Surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen.